What's up, fellow passengers? Welcome to episode two of Rearview Movies. And today I am Scotty Williams along with our co-host Trevor Kirkendall. And we are going to talk about two new movies, two new movies and see how they look in the rearview mirror. So, uh, Trevor, what are we starting with today? All right, man. Today we have two movies that were released in May of 2001. We're going to start off with A Knight's Tale. So this one opened on May 11th of 2001, so we're just past its 20th anniversary. It was directed by Brian Helgeland. I don't know how you say his last name. Brian Helgeland. Sorry, Brian. Uh, Opening weekend, this movie came in and grossed $16,511,000. Worldwide, it came in with $117 million, and that was off a budget of $65 million, so not too bad. Critics were a little cold to it. Um, the Rotten Tomatoes average is 59, uh, but the audience seemed to love it uh, on Rotten Tomatoes at 79. Their consensus on this was once you get past the anachronism, A Knight's Tale becomes a predictable, if spirited, Rocky on horseback. I absolutely love that it says that. Well, I, I love that it says that. Um, because it's funny when you say the anachronism, like that's supposed to be a big deal in this movie. The first 10 minutes of the movie, the crowd is doing a sing-along to We Will Rock You by Queen. And they're literally like stomp, stomp, clapping, singing the words. And then they stop the music at the same time as the trumpeters to give you the impression the trumpeters are playing We Will Rock You by Queen. Yeah, no, anachronism likely not a major factor in this film. So for those who forgot, A Knight's Tale is about, uh, After his master dies, a peasant squire, fueled by his desire for food and glory, creates a new identity for himself as a knight. Stars Heath Ledger, Mark Addy, 10 years before he ruled over Westeros, Rufus Sewell, Shannon Sosaman, sorry if I pronounced that name incorrect, Paul Bettany, Laura Frazier, Alan Tudyuk, and Bernice Bejo. If I remember right, this is the first time I ever saw Paul Bettany in a movie. I was looking up where I would have seen him prior to that. And yes, this is definitely because this is also prior to a beautiful mind. Is it not? Yeah, we're uh, still a couple months away from a beautiful mind coming out. That's what I thought. Yeah. um, Obviously it would have been the, you know, when we look back on it now, one of the cool benefits, Paul obviously then takes on a a great role as vision in the Marvel cinematic universe and uh, becomes a really big deal after that. But you know, in this, he just plays a really, fun part as kind of a younger guy. I remember that was the biggest part that I liked about this movie when I saw it in the theaters. Speaking of, where did you see this movie, Scotty, for the first time? I did not see this movie in theaters. Uh, I'm fairly certain that I caught it on cable (laughs) because it's just, it did not look like the kind of movie that I wanted to see, frankly. Um, I remember thinking when I saw it, I said, man, uh, Heath Ledger was really a hit with the girls in 10 Things I Hate About You. So this movie was probably made so girls can come watch him uh, wear medieval clothes and joust. Pretty much. And I'll say that I did see it in the theater. And if the target audience was teenage girls, then, yeah, that was that was who I was with. (laughs) Someone from my high school. Did you get drugged there on a date? No, it wasn't a date. It was a couple of us, actually. If I remember right, I might be mistaking it, but I think it was probably three or four of us that went. 
Um, and yeah, there were a couple girls and swooning over Heath Ledger in that movie. I, I would think that was probably one of the biggest drawing points of the movie. I mean, go back to like the, the final scene where him and his love interest, like have that nice kissing scene and the camera circles them like twice. And, uh, then there's a, a visual effect over them and the stars. And it was like, okay, this is, this is, this is pretty obvious. Did you like it the first time you saw it? Negative. No. No, I just thought it was a little, again, I maybe I, going back to Pearl Harbor, I might have been a little too much on my kick about, well, this was not at all what the Middle Ages actually was like. <laughs> but again, that's, right. that's in where if you're really doing on that, you're kind of missing the forest for the trees. But I remember liking it. I remember coming out of it and thought it was pretty entertaining. And at the time, I thought that it was kind of neat how they were able to, where the, the soundtrack sort of was all more popular music it wasn't just mandolins and stuff like that that would have been period appropriate but i thought that that was pretty cool that they had that on their soundtrack however 20 years later i don't really like that too much i think that's way too much of a distraction for what you're trying to do um you know i actually it's funny one of the first kind of headlines i picked out about this movie was that the music was actually great um, again, if you can get past the fact that medieval, that medieval peasants are supposed to know queen, um, it's, uh, it was entertaining. Uh, they used, uh, we will rock you. They used the boys are back in town. Uh, I thought the music and the soundtrack was actually pretty good and kind of a highlight of the film. Well, it's a good soundtrack. It's got good songs on it. I just think it's too distracting to kind of throw that stuff into a, um, a period piece movie such as this. Now, there's a right way to do it, and there's a wrong way to do it. I think this is the wrong way to do it, and the right way to do it we'll probably see in a movie that we're going to review next week. Right. Well, this is a wink-wink period piece. I mean, again, there's there's lots of parts of this film that, again, it kind of starts in which you can get past the anachronism. It's not... I, I think this is not meant to be an actual, like faithful kind of like again Pearl Harbor was was meant to be a faithful retelling of Pearl Harbor and a bad romance but this was not meant to be a faithful retelling of medieval jousting um right now I don't want to get the there th this was entertaining and I did enjoy it the first time I saw it and I did enjoy it on the rewatch maybe not quite as much but I still liked it but you know the the point of the movie is to be fun so it is fun it's lighthearted. every time one of those songs came on it kind of took me out of it a little bit and I can say the same thing about like 15 or so years after this movie came out, we're going to see um, a great Gatsby remake. And they did the same thing. They put like modern music. I think Jay-Z was the producer of the um, the soundtrack even. But at the same thing there, it's distracting. It's, they're trying their best to show you a recreation of a certain period. And then the music comes in and completely throws that off and takes you out of that element. And I think that's kind of what happens here, at least to me. I know I'm going to be in the huge minority on this one because I know that was kind of a thing about this movie was that it was, you know, really neat that they did that, you know, especially the opening credit sequence where they're doing the Queen stuff. But I I'm just coming off sounding really cynical, I think. <laughs> so and that's fine. No, I, I, I think you're right that you have to be judicious about how you use songs, especially in that fashion. Just as an example, um, I really liked... Um, uh, Captain Marvel when it came out I thought it was a, it was a good film but one of the biggest things I remember is I thought they made a poor music choice in the final uh, kind of battle scene where she's fighting uh, where she's fighting her uh, her mentor and stuff and they they use that uh, that song that no doubt song just a girl mm -hmm. 
It's like, oh, cute. It says just a girl, but I'm not sure that the tone fits this. Right. At least in my opinion. Uh, And so I do think you have to be judicious with how you use music. But there were several moments in there where I thought the music was well used. Um, Again, they used a Thin Lizzy song, The Boys Are Back in Town, for when they uh, were riding through London. I thought that was really cool. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Trevor, what was your favorite scene in this movie? Um, I did particularly enjoy nearly all the jousting scenes in this. Uh, I thought those were really well done. There's another scene I'm remembering right now where I think they were they were confronting each other in a church, if I remember right. Yes, and I, yeah, he something was, about that scene he was, stuck out to me. Yeah, he was moving towards her and she was backpedaling and the camera's just dollying with them. And then when the when the the scene sort of changes direction and then she's sort of in charge of it, then she's pushing him back. And he's backpedaling now, and again, the camera dollies back the other way, too. I thought that was an interesting choice for that particular moment, rather than going in for, you know, close-ups and just cutting back and forth and back and forth, because that gets annoying, but that's generally what everyone does. So I think it... I like it when you have this type of conversational scene, and they do it in a different way that doesn't get tired and boring, where it looks like they weren't even there at the same time filming it together. Because they just keep cutting back and forth and back and forth. And it's just, it gets boring. It's annoying. And so when you see something like this, especially from a Hollywood movie, I think that's kind of nice. It's a nice break to see that. You know, I took note of that scene too. I actually, you're absolutely right about the piece where they're kind of going back and forth and you can see them acting and reacting to each other. But what caught my attention about that scene was how I felt like the scene, the shot was actually way, way unnecessarily wide for that. Because even with all of that back and forth happening, you know, they were both combined like 10% of the screen. Um, Mm -hmm. It actually made me wonder if they just really wanted to highlight the church they were in. Like, were they... I think they tried to give us the impression that they were in Notre Dame, possibly. Um, but yeah, the the scale of it was just so big that even with that cool kind of back and forth happening, it almost you could you couldn't even barely see their mouths because of how wide the shot was. Well, and I think that that's part of the the point to make it that wide to show them completely engulfed in this particular room, and to show how big it is, and also it shows you a layout of the room too. That's, that's probably fair. Um, I'll tell you, my favorite scene in the movie was uh, anything where Paul Bettany was on screen, frankly. Oh, yeah. Um, Especially when he was doing the bigger presentational pieces, like kind of being the hype man. Um, Because I thought his charisma was excellent in this film. Um, I thought he showed up really well. He spoke very, very freely. And uh, no, I just thought his charisma was very much on display during a lot of scenes of this film. He is hands down the best part of this movie. Um, I remember thinking that when I first saw it and fast forward 20 years later, I still think that Um, I'm not trying to take anything away from the other people in the movie or anything like that, because this is kind of Heath Ledger's movie and that's why everyone showed up. And I thought that he really handled that well. I thought that he really carried a lot of the scenes that he's in. And at times, yeah, I think he stole the movie from people, but he's certainly really good. And I remembered who he was after this. And I continue to. And every time I see Paul Bettany, I don't say, hey, there's Vision. I say, hey, there's Chaucer. Because that's how I remember him. That's how I think of him. Mm-hmm. So even 20 years later, this movie that really was a modest box office success, you know, that it can still hold that weight to me. I think that is a testament to 
uh, Paul Bettany's performance in this movie. Well, and kind of jumping on to the to the last piece of obviously how we feel about the movie in the rearview mirror where we are now. Um, I definitely liked it better the second time watching it than I did when I saw it the first time. Uh, there was a lot more to appreciate about the film. Like you said, the, the jousting scenes were actually pretty good. Uh, a lot of that kind of back and forth, quick cuts, like the horse coming in, good sound. Um, and over the number of battles, they showed them from a number of different perspectives, sometimes overhead, sometimes from the horse. Horse, sometimes the horse coming at you and so i actually very much enjoyed it uh, on the second retail on the second uh, watch i might have enjoyed it a little bit less but that's just being real nitpicky i think it's certainly a good movie if somebody wanted to throw it on then i'd say yeah okay that's fine that's good enough to watch it certainly made heath ledger kind of a a leading man at that point i think people could see him in more mm-hmm. lead roles and you know, he moved forward after this movie and do a handful of things that were pretty mediocre in in most cases, I think. But the fact that he was getting out there and was able to secure leading roles in these movies, I think that has a lot to do with this movie coming out and people going out and were able to see him in that role. So last question about uh, A Knight's Tale. Do you think A Knight's Tale will be remade, rebooted, or sequeled? <laughs> I don't think so. I think if it was a little bit more successful, then that might have been a possibility. Maybe a sequel would have been warranted if it did a little bit better. But I mean, even in 2001, 56 million is not too terribly impressive. I mean, if it wasn't for the worldwide, they wouldn't have even made their money back on it. So, Which would have functionally been, killed off the, the franchise, I'm sure. Right, yeah. Had it been a little bit better received in the box office, I think that, yeah, that probably could have seen a sequel. But I don't think they'll remake it. Then they would have had to tell a different story, and I don't know how that would have gone. Well, that hasn't stopped them before. That's true. They crank out sequels all the time for things that are completely unnecessary. Speaking of things that are comp- uh, of movies that had completely unnecessary sequels, maybe we should talk about the next one. All right, well, next up we have a classic, an absolute classic coming up. We're going to take a look back at Shrek. Shrek opened up on May 16th of 2001. It was directed by Andrew Adamson and Vicki Jensen. Its opening weekend was $42,300,000. Good enough to open at number one. Overall, domestically, it took in a whopping $267.7 million. This was the third highest grossing movie of 2001. Worldwide, it pulled in a massive $484.4 million on a budget of just $60 million. It was up for two Oscars that year. It was up for animated feature and adapted screenplay, and it won Best Animated Feature over Pixar. What did Shrek actually beat out for Best Animated Feature that year in 2001? Um, Monsters, Inc. was nominated. I don't know what else was but offhand, but that was, that was one of them for sure. That was the one Pixar movie that came out this year. Critics and audiences both love this. Uh, critics' score on Rotten Tomatoes is averaged at 88. The audience is at 90. They say, while simultaneously embracing and subverting fairy tales, the irreverent Shrek also manages to tweak Disney's nose, provide a moral message to children, and offer viewers a funny, fast-paced ride. For those who don't remember, Shrek, of course, is about a mean lord who exiles fairy tale creatures to the swamp of a grumpy ogre who must go on a quest and rescue a princess for the Lord in order to get his land back. Hey, uh, exiles is not the word they used in the film, just so you know. They said uh, a very poignant political term. They said they were resettled. resettled. Yeah. 
There's actually a fair bit more politics in this film 20 years prior. We have a fantastic voice cast in this movie. Mike Myers as Shrek, Eddie Murphy as his buddy Donkey, Cameron Diaz, and the ever-amazing John Lithgow. So, Scotty, when did you first see Shrek? I first saw Shrek. That's another one I probably watched uh, on cable. Um, not something I went to see in the theaters because it looked like a kiddie movie around 2001. I was not a kid anymore, so probably would not have been interested in paying money to see it in the theater. Um, I do remember thinking it was fun. Pretty much that's, it was fun. I did see this in the theater. I mean, I tried to go see pretty much everything that was in the theaters at this time of my life. If I had the chance, if I had the time, I took it. Um, but I did see this in the theater and yeah, I walked out loving it. I thought it was really well done. I thought it was very cheeky. I thought they they slammed Disney a couple times, which I thought mm-hmm. was really fun. But um, you know, overall, I thought it was great. And it would be it was one of my favorite animated movies for the longest time. Well, I, I know that when I watched it uh, on the on the rewatch, honestly, I thought that it was another movie that really capitalized on some good music choices. Opening with Smash Mouth, uh, All Star, you know, a great great song for the time and well, uh, yeah my, I, I say that is a primary way to date your movie open with a smash mouth song yeah yeah although hey all-star went on to be a pretty popular song it's still a pretty popular song um is shrek really even a kid's movie honestly i'm not 100 percent sure because uh, one of the things that's changed for both of us since we first saw this movie is we are both parents now <laughs> mm-hmm. and there were so many jokes in there that were not aimed at kids. No. Um, you know, Shrek and uh, Shrek and Donkey come up on the castle, and it's got that massive tower, and uh, Shrek, who, by the way, has hated Donkey up until this point, has done nothing but say nasty stuff to him, kind of gives him the little buddy shoulder shot and goes, don't you think he's compensating for something? And, you know, it's just... And a couple of those, you know, and uh, Lord Farquaad is watching footage of Fiona from a bed that looks like it's from a cheap motel while he's got the big black chest hair that's clearly made for, you know, again, there's, there's lots of little suggestive moments that actually had me walking away saying, is this a, like a kid's movie that was really trying to make sure the parents had a good time too? Yeah, I think that's the point. I don't think that kids are going to get those references and that's, that's fine. They kind of throw them in there a little bit just so the parent doesn't have to sit there in the, in the theater or on the couch watching the movie and feel like they're being tortured, you know, cause there's some kids movies out there that are torture. I'm sure, you know, a few <laughs> <laughs> having watched them, but I watched this, I rewatched this again with my five-year-old son and he was highly entertained but uh, never once did I hear something like that and thought, oh, no, he's going to have his little mind corrupted because I know all that's going to go way over his head. Explaining to your kids what scenes are that you really don't want to explain to them is an art form all to itself. Uh, exactly. It absolutely is. And, and you know, that, that doesn't necessarily mean that I don't think it's a kid's movie. I just think that uh, within that spectrum of kids' movies, I was thinking about it like, are there kids' movies that go out of their way to entertain the adults? And, you know, what does that or does that not wind up sacrificing? Not to mention, again, if it's a it's a Mike Myers movie, so there's a lot of jokes in it that more stoop toward the lowbrow variety. Um, and that's not, on Mike, not a knock on Mike Myers. I've loved some of the movies he's done. Mm-hmm. Um, anytime So I Married an Axe Murderer comes across the stream, I usually watch it because I just <laughs> I'm entertained by his earlier stuff. Yeah. 
How great is Eddie Murphy in this role? This is one of the best voice performances, I think, in, in history of animated movies. Oh, he did a great job. It was a straight buddy love, right? It's his character from uh, from The Nutty Professor, essentially. Um, you know, kind of bombastic and loud and uh, confrontational and funny. But no, you're absolutely right. Carried the movie. Um, well, I'll tell you something else that I thought, just as a funny little side note. Um, I kind of touched on it a second ago, but... Um, you know, given our current context and things, it was really unsettling to hear a children's a children's movie use the word uns, uh, resettling someone. <laughs> <laughs> like you're you're all being resettled, and they were being given bounties for turning people were being given bounties for turning them in. I guess I hadn't seen Trek in so long. I forgot the reason they were in his swamp in the first place was because they were forced to relocate. Yeah. <laughs> so Farquad um, and there's Farquad a- rules over an apartheid state apparently. Uh, basically, um, well, even well, even better. There's another line that that really sounds funny. Twenty years later, Shrek is talking about. You know, he kind of goes back and forth between really liking Donkey and still trying to be an ogre. So there's a part where he's really mad at Donkey, and he says something like, "Well, I tell you what, I'm going to do. I'm going to go back to my swamp, and I'm going to build a ten foot wall around yeah. it." Yeah, I caught that too. <laughs> I was like, I was like, oh no. He just wants to make his swamp quiet again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I heard that. Now, it's, again, one of those things that because of the lenses that time gives you, you look back on it and you're like, oh, man, there you go. Yep. Am I supposed to not like Trek now? Yeah, right. <laughs> well, if he was maybe orange, <laughs> so that's good. That he's still green after all these years. I thought that the um, this was just really well written, too. I was paying, I, I paid a lot of attention to that as best I could while rewatching it. I just couldn't believe like how, how tight the screenplay is in this movie. And it has mm-hmm. like five writers attached to it. And to be able to come out with something that's that sharp is pretty impressive. Um, I did think that the movie kind of unraveled at the end a little bit. I mean, you look at Farquaad towards the end there, he's just this, pretentious little dude with a napoleon complex and then he goes from being just a jerk to being straight up evil in about one and a half seconds you know it's funny i actually not to throw back for a second i felt the same way about adamar in a knight's tale i thought the same thing happened to him like oh yeah in the movie like towards the beginning and middle of the movie they're really just rivals fighting for the same girl and once uh, he realizes that he's gonna lose you know next thing you know he's punching the crap out of him in a jail cell. Like just like you said, being straight evil. Right. And then basically trying to kill him by putting us, you know, putting a pointy stick on the end of his joust. Yep. Uh, but no, you're, you're right. I thought that it was a really well-written script. Um, I do like it when, when scripts assume there's some knowledge and just kind of, instead of kind of giving you the directions on the roller coaster ride before you start, mm-hmm. I like it when a script kind of throws you in the middle of the roller coaster ride and just says, Hey, let's catch up. Yeah. Yeah, you have to learn about the world. Yeah, a lot more immersive. Like like a Knight's Tale. It started with like two paragraphs about medieval jousting. Mm-hmm. Like anybody would have needed any bit of that to just understand, oh, look, they're riding with horses pointing sticks at each other. Yeah, and we didn't, we didn't really talk about Rufus Sewell's character in A Knight's Tale and how randomly evil he becomes towards the end of the movie. I mean, when he first appears on screen, he's wearing all black. That's one way to say, hey, this is this movie's villain. Mm-hmm. This is the bad guy. Yeah, yeah, and that that's kind of that's never going to go away. Anybody dressed in black is going to be the villain automatically for whatever reason. Uh, Farquaad is actually a little bit better um, developed in this case than uh, than Rufus Sewell was in A Knight's Tale. But 
Now, let me ask you, what is your, like, what were you, what was your favorite scene in Shrek? And what was the scene you could have done without? <laughs> My favorite scene in Shrek is with the gingerbread man toward the beginning <laughs> where they're torturing him. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. that's classic. And then they go into the muffin man thing. Now, do you do know you, the muffin man? The yeah. muffin man. <laughs> yeah. The muffin man. And then it, then from that, like, even after that joke sort of runs out, there's another one right behind it. So, you know, you start with the gingerbread man, the torturing, and then they move over to the muffin man thing. And then from there, then you bring the magic mirror in and there's a whole nother line of jokes. You got the dating game thing going on. Uh-huh. And um, I love the the mirror. It says, uh, you know, you're not technically a kingdom. And Farquaad looks at his henchman. The guy just smashes out a mirror. You were saying uh, that's <laughs> that's classic. I think mm-hmm. that's absolutely hilarious. And that's probably my favorite scene in the whole movie. Another nice subliminal shot at Disney, too, because uh, the first one was Snow White, and they kind of made that crack about living with seven guys. Um, and uh, they did the same thing. I think Cinderella was the second one. Yeah, Cinderella was the second one. Yeah. Um, no, I, I agree. Uh, now, what scene in the movie could you have done without? I don't know. See, one of the things that I noticed is that every single scene, at least up to the, you know, at least up to the third act of the movie, every single scene serves the story in a very concise way. There's not a wasted scene. There's not a wasted line of dialogue at all. Everything serves the script, and it's it's amazing. And mm-hmm. I think it starts to unravel in the third act. So, I mean, you could have really done some things differently, I think. But I don't think there's anything that was in the movie that, was, uh, um, that shouldn't have been there. I think convenience may have shown its face a little too much. Like the dragon, for example. Mm-hmm. The dragon is all lovey-dovey with Donkey, and Donkey's just kind of like, okay, you know, this is weird. So he escapes and leaves and gets on with it. And then suddenly, when we need him the most, or when we need her the most, the dragon returns. Like, mm. where did that come from? How did we get that? How did we get to that point? So, And the dragon was hot, fire-breathing mad at Donkey the last time we saw her yeah, in the scene. That's the convenience I'm not a big fan of in movies when that... They call it the deus ex machina. That's where the writer has sort of written themselves into a corner. And so some element of convenience swoops in and rescues him from that. Like um, You mean like a, a jouster who was a prince who then comes back to suddenly rescue Heath Ledger from the stocks and grant him the title of knight? Right. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's uh, No, that, that makes sense. Um for me, my, my favorite scene in the movie, it's not close. Uh, Shrek getting into the wrestling match with all of the, uh, with all the knights. Um, that was my favorite one. Uh, and again, I being a music guy and really enjoying music, uh, perfectly chosen choice of music and bad reputation by Joan Jett. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, he's, he's popping up his ale, then he pops it off and here comes the music in really hard. And the rest of it, the rest of the part was just really entertaining. And I, that part was easily my favorite part of the, uh, the movie. Uh, for me, the part of the movie I could have done without, to be frank, kind of the beginning, we know ogres are scary. We know they scare people off. Uh, so I'm not sure what part the whole villagers going after the ogre for no reason added to it. And again, the, the credits basically just featured a whole lot of gratuitous grossness. Well, I kind of like the opening of the movie. You know, they sort of set up his character without speaking a line of dialogue. So when the movie really gets started, you know who this guy is. And so I kind of like the the townspeople coming after him. It doesn't really serve a specific point to this story but it does set up who he is and who what the townspeople sort of think of him 
So they came charging after him. I'm sure it was just some random, just some random incident, you know, didn't necessarily happen at the time that they were, you know, removing all the fairy tale characters from the uh, from the kingdom. They still were able to come out there and they showed that these guys don't like him. But they also are too scared of him to really do anything about it. So what we're saying is Shrek is Donald Trump, I think, is what we're really getting at here. <laughs> I'm not going to go that far. <laughs> There's a couple, like, really dated things in this movie that I saw uh, and I just kind of rolled my eyes because you don't see it anymore as much. But in 2001, it was literally everywhere. And one of those is the Matrix references. Yes. I mean, we yeah, would, we are going to see that. In just about every action movie for the next decade. Well, any movie that any movie that wants to do something, you know, noticeable. Sure. Yeah, I mean, they had the the slow mo, the camera spinning around the characters as they're like suspended in the air. I mean, they did that here, and yeah, it's it's easy to do because it's all done in a computer. But it's uh, man, that got old really quick. I mean, we're only two years removed <laughs> from the Matrix, and we're I think two years away from Matrix sequels coming out in 2003 but yeah god it was so annoying every time i saw that from from 2001 on because you just saw it everywhere and it was so bad we've kind of danced around a little bit how did you feel about this movie after uh, in the rearview mirror well um so i walked out loving it from the movie theater and now that uh it got 20 years on me and i'm a bit more of a cynical snob when it comes to movies yeah, I liked it again. I still liked it. I didn't love it as much, and it's mostly because of the unraveling at the end. Up until that point, I was just like, man, this is so good. Like, I don't remember it being this good. And then it starts to come apart at the end, and I'm like, oh, yeah. Now I remember. <laughs> <laughs> well, folks, that'll do it for us on Review Movies, folks. Thanks so much for making the trip with us. And always remember, if someone asks you if you're a god, you say yes.